from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Recent data from LinkedIn show a surge in companies recruiting and hiring for roles such as chief of diversity. As employees feel more emboldened to speak out about their work environments amid ongoing calls to end racism, companies are intensifying efforts focused on diversity and inclusion. We'll learn more about the trend and hear from experts on what it really means to make workplaces more inclusive and equitable. And we want to hear from you. How is your workplace approaching issues of diversity and inclusion? Email us at forum at kqed.org. That's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Whether the position is called head of diversity or chief diversity officer, the role of leading an organization's diversity and inclusion efforts is the job of the moment, according to a recent LinkedIn study. And if you search for director of diversity online, over 100 job listings come up, with the majority of them listed within the last month. Last week, Instagram was one of the latest companies to announce its hiring a director of diversity and inclusion. Here with me to look at this hiring trend and to consider what successful inclusion efforts look like are Marguerite Ward, Senior Strategy Reporter for Business Insider. Welcome to Forum, Marguerite Ward. Thank you. And Yes, and Dr. Akila Cadet, founder and CEO of Change Cadet, a diversity consulting firm offering services that support anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. Welcome to Forum, Akila Cadet. Thank you for having me. Uh, So Marguerite Ward, I'd like to start with you to get a sense of this trend and what the LinkedIn data tells us. I know you reported on that. What can you can you kind of give us the lay of the land with that? Yeah, so overall, what we've been seeing is there's been a 71% increase worldwide in all diversity, equity, and inclusion jobs. Um, I'm going to refer to this as DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, So over the past five years, there's been a 71% increase with the role of head of diversity growing by more than 107%. So that's been the overall trend. And then what the LinkedIn data shows us about this summer is that uh, DEI roles spiked from May to early June. And that was in the correlation they're making is in direct response to, you know, the protests that were going on after the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Exactly, exactly. There's been sort of a collective awakening and uh, leaders are taking note. And Akila Cadet, when we say diversity and inclusion in the workplace, what does that mean? It's a big term, often a really big job. And on average, what are companies considering or looking to consider when they take the step to hire a head of diversity, for example, or the step to enlist your consulting services? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note that um, you know what was just shared is incredibly powerful with the spike, right? And those rules that are direct correlation of um, what my father calls the Floyd effect. Um, and so you're seeing this trend because of that awakening where companies are looking to say, what can we do to support our black employees, our BIPOC, black indigenous people of color? And with the murder, not killing, but with the murder of George Floyd um, and the awareness that's happening in society, we're seeing that come into the workplace. So as a direct result, there are more resources going into that position of hiring that chief diversity officer or the consultant, the, the, um, you know, a combination of, of both. 
But we're in a position where they're figuring out what that means for them with the resources they have, the strategy, the concept, and the time that they're going to put into the position. So what we're seeing as a, a, a diversity consulting firm is one, crisis recovery. How well did they do with the murder of George Floyd? Right. So was there external statement? Did it match their internal statement? Was there a disconnect there Two, again? What resources do they have to create a cultural shift and change? And three, what is their long term strategy for institutionalizing diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging and anti-racism? How are they wanting to become an anti-racist company? All right. Because this covers it a wide set of issues too. It's not, it's, you know, it's recruiting, it's pay, it's team behavior, it's leadership, it's day-to-day interactions, right? When you, when you're looking at DEI, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Which is an important part to how we assess who we work with. What's your, what's your capacity right now? Do you have that person in place? Do you want to hire that person? Are you doing it with a committee? Um, Is it being led by an executive group and, and, and so forth? And Marguerite Ward, you reported on a survey about Americans' attitudes toward business and government when it comes to addressing racism and ushering in change. What what did it find? Uh, yeah, it was a recent Gallup poll that found that the uh, majority, the overwhelming majority of Americans um, do agree with the Black Lives Matter and the anti-racist protests going on um, and that they do want change. Uh, there was sort of different specifics about uh, there was variation in terms of the extent to which, uh, you know, they want companies to uh, not companies, excuse me, governments to defund police. Um, but there was clear consensus that among companies, they wanted leaders speaking out and enacting diversity, equity and inclusion change. But the survey, there was a survey that found that only 25% of respondents feel business leaders are actually meeting that challenge. And you've written, Akila Cadet, about the danger of a new glass cliff that you call the Black Bluff when it comes to Black people and other people of color being hired into organizations who don't really walk the talk of diversity and inclusion. And you highlight not just inclusion, but belonging being important. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so when we talk about belonging, belonging is how can I be, how can I show up to the workplace and be valued for who I am? Uh, Not compromising who you are, right? So when we think about companies, there's a sense of belonging for people who are in leadership roles and in power because one, um, you know, they have the, the power of a company, but also they are able to get the benefits of what we talk about when we're saying um, equality and equity. They have the full benefits of those things, so they feel great. But what does that look like for our senior leaders, our middle manager, and more importantly, our frontline and BIPOC staff? And so that's why we want to come to a place of belonging. As a company, when you reach a place of belonging, then you can do all the things that you want to do. You can grow, you can make money, um, you can be anti-racist because people are being valued for who they are. But I'd like to talk about the black bluff and the, the term um, in reference to the glass cliff. So we know the glass cliff is in relation to that glass ceiling that happens for women. But the glass cliff is when, um, you know, a woman is put into a leadership role and they are not resourced well and then they fail. There's lots of issues around gender there. But the black bluff is that when where we see that black employees or BIPOC employees are hired into leadership positions that are looking to figure out what being anti-racist is and or maybe doing it in a performative way. And they're at risk for falling victim to the black bluff. Again, not being resourced because it's more performative than actual true cultural change. And for both of you, um, with this trend, 
Is this just lip service that we're saying? Do you think there is a real shift happening with organization values and accountability? Or if it wasn't for kind of good PR and good for the bottom line, do you think we'd still be seeing um, this interest in hiring and making space for these positions um, for both of you, Marguerite and Akila? So I'll, I'll jump in, um, and I think that Dr. Cadet brings in a really important point that um, we have to avoid this glass cliff or this black bluff where leaders are just hired and put into these positions but not well-resourced and sort of tasked to be on their own on an island to uh, to usher in change. It's it's really a company-wide effort. Um, but, but to your question on if this is a real turning point, you know, there's a couple of things that make me feel like an optimist. And, um, you know, let me know if, if you disagree. But but what I'm seeing is, you know, you have a number of huge brands, not a number, several, um, who are pulling advertisements from Facebook and Instagram over the spread of uh, racism and misinformation. These are big brands like Boeing, Shobani, Duncan, Levi's. Um, so they're pulling millions of dollars in, in advertisements. Um, that shows to me that they're they're starting to put their money where their mouth is. Um, and in addition to that, you know, more employees are speaking out about racism and a toxic workplace environment. You have brands like Glossier, Refinery29, even Ella DeGeneres, um, her TV show. You have workers speaking out about alleged racist behavior. And um, company leaders are realizing that you can't just stay silent anymore. Uh, you have to actively avoid being racist. You have to be anti-racist. Um, in addition, you know, more and more young workers are, um, that Gen Z is entering the workforce at an unprecedented rate. Um, they have, uh, let's see, 60% of Gen Zers believe that diversity is good for society. So if leaders want to attract top talent and, and keep them, they have to walk the walk when it comes to diversity. Um, Gen Zers are also going to be um, more and more uh they have more and more spending power. They have spending power of $143 billion and 90% of Gen Zers support Black Lives Matter. So these stats make me confident that leaders are going to to listen to the moment. Akila Cadet, your thoughts? I mean, I have many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and we have I plenty of time, but yeah, what's your first <laughs> thought before our break? <laughs> okay, well, here's the thing. Uh, with the murder of George Floyd, which was actually a modern day lynching. So if you look at the terminology of what a lynching is, it's to instill fear and harm in black communities. And that's exactly what happened on May 25th. We saw a huge news cycle on May 26th. What's happening? What's going on? And for as a company, Change Today, my company, we received an influx of requests. Um, you know, May 27th, definitely in June. What do we do? How can we be better? What do we do? How can we move forward? What do we do? What do we do? Right. And that is a direct correlation to the fact that we are still in a pandemic and a recession. So when you think about like, um, like the turning point and feelings of hope, uh, we've had multiple times in history with the black community for getting to progress and, and into better places. But what we haven't had is Gen Z and we haven't had social media. And so with that and also being home, literally you're either quarantining or shelter in place, you had to sit in the fact that you could potentially be racist. You had to sit in the fact that you could be adding to upholding values of white supremacy. And you had to sit in the fact of what can I do with my privilege, whether I'm a BIPOC person, a white passing BIPOC person, so a black 
or indigenous person of color who looks white or white assimilating person, a BIPOC person who assimilates with white dominant culture, white supremacy, what can I do so that these horrific traumatizing things end? What can I do to end white supremacy? And so those very people who are sitting home because they were still are some of the leaders of these organizations. And if they weren't on board with it, the same people who are sitting home and still we're asking those leaders the question, what are you going to do about it as me as a black employee? How am I gonna feel safe here? What are you gonna do about it as the white person who is an ally so that I feel safe here? And that is something that we have not seen before. So think about it this way. I'm the same wonderful, amazing person, Akila, Dr. Akila today. I'm just doing what I do. But what I can do now is say anti-racism. I could not say that before. So we're also seeing that shift as well, where we can have real crucial conversations. We're talking about the increased interest companies have in hiring diversity executives and overall inclusion and equity in the workplace with Marguerite Ward, senior strategy reporter for Business Insider, and Akila Kadeh, founder and CEO of Change Kadeh, a diversity consulting firm offering services that support anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. And we'd like to hear from you, our listeners, about how your workplace is approaching issues of diversity. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. More forum after this break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim. We're talking about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, new data from LinkedIn, sowing a surge in interest in roles like head of diversity. I'm joined by Marguerite Ward, senior strategy reporter for Business Insider, and Dr. Akila Kade, founder and CEO of Change Kade, a diversity consulting firm. And we want to hear from your listeners. How is your workplace approaching issues of diversity and inclusion? Have you seen or perhaps initiated change at your company or organization when it comes to equity and diversity? What have you seen work well or not so well when it comes to addressing these issues in the workplace? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So Akila Kade, back to you. In your years of consulting with organizations, what has been an example of a company doing the work of equity inclusion well, what are some best practices that you've seen? So doing the uh, equity work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, anti-racism work well means it's coming from the top. You have the highest level person, the CEO, the executive director, whomever it may be, who is on board with it. And like we were talking about earlier, is resourcing it, not just with the money and the people, but resourcing it with whatever is needed to remove any barriers or roadblocks to get to organizational and cultural change. It's important to note that diversity all the way through to anti-racism is individual behavior. Diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, anti-racism is personal. It's personal. We have personal lived experiences. We have, you know, um, internal and externalized stuff. We have bias and biases, racism and stereotypes that are happening. And so when that leader who may understand it or may be on a journey of understanding it is role modeling that behavior, then you have profound impact for what happens for a company. So that's when it really works well. Most of the time, not everyone's on board. And so then things become stuck and they get to a certain point and that's where initiative fatigue uh, can build. 
And Marguerite Ward, you've spoken with a number of diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals in your reporting about what senior, senior leaders can do to advance black and brown voices in their companies. What bra- best practices have you learned about? Well, in addition to, you know, the great point that Dr. Kaday makes that it has to start from the top and that you know, DEI leaders or consultants need to have the resources. I think another thing that I've heard a lot from my sources is first, you have to really create the space where BIPOC employees, uh, specifically Black employees right now, can speak up and say, here's what's not going right. Here's where we need to change. So you need to create these spaces. Um, You also need to start to create a culture where microaggressions, um, you know, and microaggressions are seemingly innocuous uh, comments or statements uh, that actually show privilege, racism, um, sexism, or another form of privilege um, or or um, hatred. And so you need to create a, an environment where microaggressions are not tolerated. So as an example, if a coworker remarks on a black woman's hair, uh, you know, employees, BIPOC employees feel empowered to call that problematic behavior out um, and and just stop it in its tracks because um, the majority of workers actually have reported experiencing racism and oftentimes they come out in these these cultural um, you know exchanges. The other thing I will mention is um, a lot of my sources said that holding accountable uh, holding managers accountable to DEI change could uh, could make these, buzzwords like diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging actually happen. So for example, you know, how many, what percent of their new hires are non-white people, people of color? What percent of people who get promoted are black or brown? Um, Have you ensured that all of your employees have completed diversity, equity, and inclusion training? Is there, uh, how do your employees feel about you when it comes to, to race? Um, So really creating a culture of accountability is is also something I've heard. I'm going to read a couple comments here from listeners. One, this listener writes, all this talk about diversity is focused on race, but ageism is alive and well. Some employers are overlooking older people to hire those in their 20s and 30s. In some cases, older folks have have useful skills, but their experience is over 10 years old, and the advice is not to use experience from over 10 years ago. And another listener writes, I'm a person with multiple disabilities and the executive director of a nonprofit. I often change the phrase to diversity, equity, inclusion, and access because access should be a part of equity, but is too often overlooked or excluded. People with disabilities need to be part of this discussion and are too often excluded. Akila Kaday, your thoughts on kind of, I think in this moment, again, yes, the focus has been on on race, but diversity, inclusion, equity, and um, belonging, anti-racism, and um, what this listener writing and access is a broad swath that includes a lot of underrepresented groups, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to remind everyone that race is a social construct. It's not real. So it's really more so about ethnicity. Yes, we have racism, but it, it's ethnicity and um, identity. It's ethnicity and, um, you know, uh, being disabled, right? So what I'd like to share with everyone is that my name is Akila Kaday. I am intersectionality. I am black, a woman. 
I have uh, major depressive disorder as well as being uh, from being discriminated against in the workplace. And I live with a disability. I have an invisible illness and a rare heart condition. So um, I have weakness on my left side. I, um, I get to go to the emergency room for the rest of my life. So the work that I do is for everyone. And although I'm a new 38 <laughs> and, and ageism is very, very important, I remember the opposite of that. I, I know exactly why I received a doctorate at 33 because no one believed what I had to say with my master's. So with everything I do, I'm thinking about intersectionality, which is the benefit of having a BIPOC person who's in a leadership role because they have naturally more akin to think about the intersectionality that comes when we talk about ethnicity comes when we talk about diversity. Um, this is why it's incredibly important. And again, to what Marguerite said, because accountability is important, like crucial to have accountability. But it's also important to define what diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, access, um, anti-racism means for the company. If it is not defined, then people will feel left out. They will feel it's not for them. But when you have an anti-racist company, an anti-racist business, it is inclusive, it should be inclusive of all people, all the different points of intersectionality. If it is not that, it's not anti-racist because you'll have ableism, you'll have sexism, you'll have discrimination, and so forth. All right, let's go to caller Ray in Sunnyville. Ray, you're on the air. Thank you. So my company has hired a an inclusion specialist or inclusion director. But the message we're getting as employees is that, you know, we're all racist. You know, that, yes, I have black friends, gay friends, you know, I have multiple employees of different genders, you know, that I work with. But the message I'm getting is that, A, I'm a racist because I'm a white male. And two, the other problem is, is that if I run into two candidates, that are of equal capability applying for the job, the tiebreaker must be their ethnicity, not how I feel that, you know, one or the one of either candidates must do the job or can do the job or fits in best with the group. And I'm running into that, that issue, and we talk about it a lot, and Nobody seems to want to address the question for management. Thanks, Ray. Akila Kadeh, your your thoughts in regards to his concerns? Yeah, as long as you don't have implicit bias, then ethnicity shouldn't matter, right? So if um, anyone's in a position of, um, let me take a step back. If you have white dominant culture, meaning the majority of the employees at the company are white, you have to ask why. Why are they white? Is it because I hire people who look like me and have a lived experience like me um, and I feel more comfortable that way? Or is it because culture fit is a code word for we kind of want people to be white to keep things being white? Now, I don't necessarily believe in, in the work that we do in my company saying that people are racist and there are diversity consultants that do that. But the question is, what is the problem with diversifying the hires, right? And getting to the root of that. Um, the other thing that, that, that comes up a lot with um, an introduction of a new leader in a diversity role rolling out diversity 
is the what does this mean for me thing. And that's why it's really important to communicate um, the role of this individual, how all staff levels can communicate with this person and work with this person, provide continuous channels of feedback. But it's also important to ask yourself, why do you feel uncomfortable about potentially being called a racist? Is it because you're a racist? Or is it because you haven't figured out what it means for you and your position as a black person, indigenous person, a person of color, a white person, white passing person, of what it means to truly be inclusive of people that are in the space? It is our job and responsibility to address and be aware of our stereotypes and our bias. And we're aware of our stereotypes and our bias, we can have richer conversations, collaboration, and work with one another. When it comes to the position of why do I have to do this, then there's more work that needs to be done for that individual who's asking that question. And Marguerite Ward, for some of these companies, it's meant adding new metrics and goals um, in terms of addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplace. And that means like doubling the number of women and underrepresented minorities in senior positions by X year, for example. How important have you heard or seen that data and data tracking in diversity inclusion efforts is or will be? Oh, it's it's extremely important. Um, and I think you highlight an, an important uh, stat that it's not only the entry level workers that you want to focus on um, diversifying and make sure that you have um, more specifically more black and brown employees in spaces that there aren't. Um, but you also need them in leadership positions, um, because then you have a culture of inclusivity um, to what Akila was talking about. Um, and I was just really um, amazed and um, just really in awe that you share your full experience, your full lived experience, because it shows the, the importance of intersectionality and the work that you do. Um, but what's interesting is that every company, uh, every large corporation has this data. It's called EEO1C or EEOC1 data. Um, they have to publish the breakdown of their workforce uh, to the government. And more and more, there's been a push for companies to make these uh, data points public. And so now um, I think that's going to be the next wave where uh, to this DEI conversation where, you know, you're you're pledging these goals, but are you meeting them? And uh, what does your data say? So I think that it's going to be more important in the future. And what about the role of task forces, town halls, and trainings? You know, maybe maybe there isn't a full role for like head of diversity yet, but maybe um, you're you're kicking off a task force and um, having a series of trainings. Um, Akila Kade and Marguerite Ward, um, your thoughts on on the inclusion of those types of resources? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, EEOC stands for Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. Um, and some businesses have to do it, some don't, like depends on your structure, but uh, it's important uh, place for transparency and data. Know that that data is biased because it's based off of race. So for instance, we work with global brands, they don't do anything with race. It's all about ethnicity. So it's just a, a, a fun fact there. And when it comes to the, the town halls and the task force or the facilitated discussion or all hands, whatever it's called, there's value in them. Only when they're facilitated, um, at the, the town halls and facilitated discussions, all hands, when they're facilitated by someone who understands um, the various different touch points, intersectionality when it comes to 
DEI and anti-racism, then it works well. It can be used as a feedback channel for um, the task force or advisory group or committee or whatever it may be called, steering committee, um, for doing diversity work and efforts. But here's the thing. Um, when you have those groups, the goal is to actually not have it for it to end. And the reason why I say that is because if you were at that touch point with what Margarita is saying and you have those different points of data, which traditionally come from workforce surveys, diversity surveys, demographic information that's collected along the way, looking at promotions, exits, um, who's being interviewed and so forth, that group that's looking at organizational change for diversity should have access to that data to put together a roadmap, strategic plan or work plan. When you get to the point where it's done, you have the mission, the values, you're looking at pay equity, um, you're looking at promotions over time and succession plans and so forth, that group should really just be a culture group, a workplace group, um, because diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, anti-racism is all about organizational change and culture. And so when you get to that point where it is something where you don't have to think about necessarily naming or calling out things and people can truly be anti-racist, then you're thinking about what are the professional development opportunities that we would have for the team? What's the learning pathway look like? Who are we promoting and hiring and firing, but not having to have it focus so much on what people look like, how they identify um, to get to that place of, of true anti-racism. Let's and there was just oh, go ahead, there was just yeah one thing I wanted to add um, in response to to the um, listener who called in um, that you know he he spoke about being uncomfortable being told that or feeling like there was this sense of feeling targeted um, and I just wanted to say that you know before getting into reporting I actually had an activist background so um, I was. I was very involved in Black Lives Matter when it first started and um, as an ally. And um, a lot of questions that came up for me were uncomfortable. Um, as a white woman, uh, how, how did I experience race? How did I experience privilege? We played this game where um, you had to you had to step in closer and closer to the center of the circle, the more privilege you had. And I saw with each question, I would sort of go closer and closer to the center and leave my BIPOC friends um, behind. And so I think that with these conversations, it's completely normal to feel uncomfortable. And I think um, it's an important time to recognize our privilege. So I just wanted to ask uh, to, to suggest that. And kind of in that vein, Olivia tweets, people assuming, assume being racist is always and only violent. You can be racist, but not be an ill-intentioned person. It's about being aware of your actions and their consequences and being humble enough to understand. Uh, let's try and squeeze a quick call from Gerard in San Ramon. You're on the air. Oh, I think we just lost Gerard and Tim in San Francisco. You're with us. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Just two really quick comments. And the first one I'll make is if we want true equality in the workplaces, uh, then we need to have economic um, pay um, equality. And the only way that that can happen is if uh, pay um, your pay rate or your salary is um, also transparent as far as part of the hiring. Because I have seen um, – uh, when I worked at the Gap Corporation, they hired uh, women managers predominantly. And the reason why is because they paid them less and they knew they would work harder as managers. So that, that's a direct observation that I had. So uh, pay equality is 
um, extremely important and should be um, one of the like um, should be not just putting people in, in places of management, but also paying them equally in those in those places or just in employment. And uh, my second comment is um, when we have these discussions um, uh, as a queer man, I'm a white uh, queer man, but I'm what they call passing. I can pass for heterosexual. But my my counterparts, my other gay, lesbian and transgender counterparts don't have it as easy as I do. And we are always left out of the conversation. And I would like us to be included in more of those conversations. Thank, Thank you for you. taking my comments and my yes. call. Thanks right. for sharing those comments, Tim. We're talking about the increased interest companies have in hiring diversity executives. Inclusion Equity in the Workplace with Marguerite Ward, a business insider, Akila Kade, founder of C- founder and CEO of Change Kade, a diversity consulting firm. We'll have more of your calls and comments and this conversation after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging in the workplace with Marguerite Ward, senior strategy reporter for Business Insider, Dr. Akila Kade, founder and CEO of Change Kade, a diversity consulting firm offering services that support anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. Uh, let's go to another caller, Suzanne in San Francisco. You're on the air. Hi. Um I, thanks for taking my uh, call. Uh, I've been involved in a, a variety of uh, workplace diversity trainings and, envi- and that environment and have found that um, the focus, when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, that um, if it's just about race, to be really clear that it's just about race. Unfortunately, I've experienced, I'm a, um, a white-looking woman with a disability, and I have found that there's often terms and processes that are actually um, microaggressions against uh, folks with disabilities that cross race, class, gender. Um, so I just would really ask, I guess my comment is to really ask to be thoughtful and consider um, disability as an and, not an or. And when presenting uh, uh education and training that not to use disability euphemisms and other situations as, um, you know, because it just turns out to be a microaggression and it really falls into the, flies into the face of what diversity, equity, and inclusion is really about. I'm totally think focusing on race is great. I'd, I'd like to see it labeled as that, um, that equity is more than just race. Thank you, Suzanne, for those comments. I know that was something that we we touched on earlier. And Akila Kade, what how important, especially when you're kind of setting space in conversations with um, organizations and leaders you consult with, is kind of having these, you know, clear definition of terms and and goals in in having these conversations. I mean, it's incredibly important to have clear definitions of of terms and and goals and and to be truly inclusive. Equity is incredibly important, but it's also very hard to do in the workplace because if you only have one type of lived experience, equity could mean we hired women. 
uh, we're working with women. <laughs> we advocate for women. We have a mother group, right? But in actuality, it's it's more than that. So the last commenter, I appreciate what you're saying. And please know and rest assured that with all the work that I do, I talk about my disability. I advocate for people who have disabilities. Um, I even take the language away and the workshops that we do away from, um, you know, able-bodied to non-disabled. So people who don't have disabilities are non-disabled because even though I have a disability and I have um, an ADA placard and I'm judged because I, I walk out of my car, I may or may not have my cane that day. And I would just like to note that my cane does say MF boss for those who are questioning who I am. I am aware that there's that bias that comes this way. I'm aware that I have to share that people with disabilities are able to do things. They may do them differently. They may need more time. They may need assistance or they may do them the same way as a non-disabled person. I cannot stress this enough how important words are with the definitions, the terms, and the words that are used so people can feel valued and appreciated, connecting it back to um, the importance of belonging in general, but in the workplace. Great. Thank you for that. And Gerard in San Ramon, we have you again. Welcome. You're on the air. Awesome. You know, I'm listening to the program, and uh, my, my, my statement is that this, this conversation that we're having is supposed to be about uh, uh, diversity in, in, in terms of ethnicity in the workplace. And the problem that I see that is even unfolding on your show is that when we start to bring up black grievances or ethnic grievances in the workplace, then everybody's agenda starts to come up and it actually diverts the conversation and, and, and steers us off from being focused in terms of ethnic equality. This conversation, the conversation that we're having in the United States of America right now is because we saw George Floyd get lynched on television. And so many of your callers are calling in with their own personal grievances that have nothing to do with ethnic equality when it comes to black people being on the bottom of the totem pole, they're lower than dis people with disability. They're lower than every other issue that is happening when it comes to the workplace. And it, the numbers and the data shows that. So I would like for us as, you know, a group or people or the country to stay focused because we're not going to get anywhere if we try to have this conversation about race equality or ethnic equality, however you want to label it. If when every time we try to bring up our issues and our grievances, the conversation is always diverted to what about me and what about us? Thank you. Thank you for that comment, Gerard. Um, to clarify, I mean, we, we are shaping, yes, and, and we are shaping the, the conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is kind of the broader definition. Um, but we are referencing that there is a surge in response to um, to the events over the summer and the protests against racism and that being um, really an issue of the moment that we're trying to address. Um, Akila Kade, you said you wanted um, to respond. Yeah, I want to talk about something called white centering. Um, and it's going to what Marguerite said earlier. Uh, Non-black people are uncomfortable and as a result of being uncomfortable, they go to this thing called white centering. White centering is, but I'm not racist. White centering is, but I didn't do that. I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. You're changing my words. It's going into a form of gaslighting to focus back on oneself and what, what someone wants. And a lot of these conversations can go that way because 
white people and non-black people are not ready to be uncomfortable. So what, how I like to explain this to, to anyone who's listening is that I'm black. I'm a proud black woman, again, who lives with a disability and mental health and so many, so many things. I'm awesome. I'm amazing. But I am that way because at a very young age, my parents taught me how to be safe in white spaces. This is something that does not happen for non-black people. This does not happen for white people. This definitely does not happen for white people. So ever since I had to be safe in white spaces with just preschool, kindergarten, K through 12, college, my first job, walking, driving, doing all these things, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I have experience being uncomfortable. I have experience advocating for myself, which is why I have this company to advocate for black people, to advocate for people with disabilities and so forth. But the problem is, is when people are not ready to be uncomfortable and not ready to do the work, then work will not get done. So you'll see the shift of the conversation going back to themselves or something they feel more comfortable with or may have more expertise in. LGBTQ plus community, a disability and so forth. Now, the way to get to a place where we have true equality and anti-racism in the workplace is to address what is going on for the lack of humanity and equality for black people. And the reason for that is the historical context of slavery in America. Same for indigenous people too. There's near genocide for indigenous people. But the simple fact that black people did, you know, didn't have the right to vote until 1965, uh, black people are still not able to go outside and feel safe. And I don't know if anyone's figured this out, with the very prominent murder and lynching of George Floyd, we had prior to that a horrific, traumatizing, another lynching with uh, Ahmaud Arbery, but it happened right before the pandemic. So now again, like I said earlier, when you're sitting in the pandemic and people are realizing things, that new realization means that when people are not doing anything to advocate for the humanity and equality of black people, they are choosing to be a card holding member or they're questioning being truly racist. Even with all the stuff that's happening, we still had Jacob Blake a couple weeks ago. We still have violence happening at police brutality protests. Police brutality is happening at police brutality protests. So I absolutely understand that gentleman's comment because it is true. When you see how we are being treated poorly and we are still getting murdered, harmed, traumatized, it means something needs to be done. With that shift, we'll see more for the other deserving communities as well. Okay, and I'm going to go to a comment now. A listener asked, how does one deal with initiative fatigue and how one should evaluate whether a workplace is worth one's time and energy or not? And initiative, I'm already struggling with it, fatigue states, when the number of initiatives increases while time, resources, and emotional energy are constant, then each new initiative, no matter how well-conceived or well-intentioned, will receive fewer minutes, dollars, and ounces of emotional energy than its predecessors. Uh, Marguerite Ward, do you have any thoughts on that based on your conversations with DEI professionals? Well, I'd actually love to go to um, Dr. Kade first on that. Okay. Um, yeah. B- yeah, just because it's not a, an area that I'm extremely familiar with. Oh, Dr. Kade. Initiative fatigue is real. <laughs> I'm even in saying initiative because we say it so much. And the reason why we have initiative fatigue is because we've had failed things that happened before. We need you to put your time and energy towards this. This is what we're doing. This is the new launch for the thing, the new product, the way we're going to operate in the culture. And so... Um, When there's lack of communication, transparency, role modeling from leadership, 
um, following through um, with the work that's being done, people won't believe diversity efforts and initiatives that are happening now because they saw what happened to the past initiatives. So this is when leaders um, in general, C-suite leaders, as well as the head of diversity or people and culture, whomever it may be, they have to really follow through for that accountability piece and hold people to the same regard. And when they do that, that's where you can see that it won't be a place of initiative fatigue. It'll go into a place of institutionalizing um, being anti-racist. When you are in a position to like get to a true place of belonging and anti-racism, you can't have that one guy who did that one thing that one time be above the exception to the rule when he's discriminated someone or, or avert racism or microaggression. That defeats the purpose of all the work that was done. So everyone has to be held to the same regard. If they're not showing up in the way that's set to be truly inclusive and diverse and equitable, then they have to go. They have to go, be held accountable to change their behavior, or they have to be exited out of the organization. All right, let's go to caller Brad in San Mateo. Brad, you're on the air. Hi, you guys. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I am calling to reply uh, to uh, white guy Ray, who called in about 1030. And any white male in this country who's complaining about you know, feeling like they're being called a racist or just that they're being imposed on and their right to evaluate who to hire. I think they just really need to see um, the film 13th and understand the enormity of the transgression that's been perpetrated against people of color. This is coming from a white guy. You just it's not an attack on white people. <laughs> it's really just recognizing the imbalance. And I think just a key step to growth if you care about growth as a human being it's just recognizing your fallibilities and white people just need to see we're not being attacked but we just need to recognize the gravity what's happening to people of color the violence being suffered with violence i mean incredible like brutality and you're complaining about feeling like you're being called a racist it's just such an incredible like uh disparity and like complaining so to hear him say that i just want to chime in as a white guy at least all of us just look at who, the representation in congress it's all white male you know and like there's no representation for people of color hardly and there's no representation equal for women so this is a white guy i was saying this so just all white guys recognize that there's huge imbalance and see that film 13th if you just need to get an idea of what they have suffered so that's my comment Thank you for sharing your comment, Brad, and the recommendation. Uh, let's go to Erica in Santa Cruz. Erica, you're on the air. Hi, thank you so much. I, I also had a comment for the, the guy who identified himself as a white guy, not to criticize because I'm white and I am working very hard to be an anti-racist and um, I know that it's difficult and it's um I would never have thought I was a racist, but in learning, I'm finding things within myself that I really need to change. And I think his comment about hiring somebody and a, a criteria being I, to, now he can't decide whether or not they'll fit in is really dangerous because that's the whole point of diversity. It's not about fitting in. It's about diversifying and getting better and and changing. So I think that that's something that is a, a wrong criteria. And I would also like to just uh, 
come in to the last two callers for what they've said. I, I agree and support, and thank you so much for this show. Right, thank you for your comment, Erica. Um, Akila Kade or Marguerite Ward, do you have any thoughts on? The one thing I wanted to add is um, when it comes to intersectionality, uh, when we lift up BIPOC people, when we uh, collectively give them agency, or when they are able to have agency themselves, we lift up everyone else. Uh, we lift up women, we lift up uh, people who experience ageism, uh, people who experience ableism. Um, so that's that's one thing I want to say, that when, when we lift up uh, Black people, which we absolutely need to do because of the history of intense and enormous violence, um, we're not leaving other people behind. I think we're just creating a culture of acceptance and um, independence and agency. And uh, Dr. Kade, let me know what you think. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, again, words are, are powerful. So when people, you know, are saying, well, the kind of like, what about me? You're coming to a place of, um, you know, white centering or, or or gaslighting, these are individuals that hear Black Lives Matter and think we want to be the, the dominant culture. Right now it's white dominant culture. That's not what Black people are saying. We just want equality, humanity and equality so that things are equal. When things aren't equal, then that you know we have a disconnect for the various other points of intersectionality. And so by leading the efforts with um, Black Lives Matter, the Black community, we can have that shift. And the last, I just want to share that I have privilege. We, talk, we hear a lot about white privilege, but I have privilege too. I have earned privilege and unearned privilege. I'm proud of the privilege that I have. But even with all the privilege, I own a business, I have a doc, I'm U.S. born, I'm a child of immigrant, but born here, I came from a middle-class family. I'm not white and I'll never be white. And so what that means is because of how America set up with uh, holding values of white supremacy and white dominant culture, even with all the work that I do on a daily basis for dismantling and ending white supremacy, I'll never be white. There will people, there will be people who will never listen to me because they can't get past the color of my skin or my hair or my curls or how I talk because they have so much bias, stereotype and racism within them. So what we're asking for now is for white people to realize that you can actually have a significant amount of change because of the privilege that you have to educate other white people, to educate other white passing people so that we can have true humanity and equality for all. And just in the last like 20 seconds, what are, uh, Kila Kade, what advice would you just have for organizations that are really seeking to take these next steps seriously? 20 seconds. Uh, actually do the work, contact me if you need help, and sign up for the Ally Nudge. You can have a guide with uh, your team to learn about your individual behavior for change. Great. Well, thank you to my guest, Marguerite Ward, Senior Strategy Reporter for Business Insider. Thanks, Marguerite Ward, for joining us today. Thank you. And thank Dr. Akila Kade, founder and CEO of Change Kade, a diversity consulting firm offering services that support anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. Thanks for joining us, Akila Kade. Thank you both. Keeping amazing. This has been Forum. Mina Kim is back tomorrow. I'm Ariana Prail. Thanks for listening.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.